I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 this morning. It's been a real privilege to be able to be here this weekend and to talk about the importance of the family on Friday. And then this morning to focus our attention on the very important subject of our worship. If you think about it, really, ever since Cain and Abel, God's people have been asking the question, what is the proper way to worship the Lord? In many ways, there's uncertainty reigning amongst God's people today over whether or not they're worshiping according to how God would want them to worship. What, what elements ought we to encourage in our congregational worship? What ought we be doing when we gather? What is acceptable? There are many godly Christians who perhaps uh, attempt to enhance their worship, and they believe that they have freedom really to include anything in worship that they think to be profitable, that they think to be good. And then other godly Christians are then constrained to participate maybe with things that go against their conscience or they're unsure, is this really the best way to please the Lord with our worship? And so we have this uncertainty that is often the case in many of our churches today where people are unsure about whether or not what they are doing in corporate worship is really pleasing unto the Lord. This is an important question. And this is a question that Jesus Christ in particular confronted head on in his day, specifically because, as we know, the Pharisees in the days in which Jesus lived on this earth had added additional requirements and traditions to the religious life of the Jews that went beyond what God had prescribed in his word. And we find one of these confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees here in Mark chapter 7. And this passage will help us this morning to introduce the critical importance of biblical authority over how we worship the Lord. Look with me at Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, what's going on here? What is the Pharisees' concern before we continue reading and see what Jesus' answer to their question is? Well, it's important to recognize here that the Pharisees' concern was not over hygiene. They weren't worried about getting germs, and that's why they wanted the disciples to wash their hands. No, they were concerned with ceremonial cleansing that they taught was necessary in order to worship God correctly. They had added that requirement to the religious practices of the Jews. And so Jesus addresses their concern, continue reading in verse 6. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, 
You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So here Jesus is soundly condemning the Pharisees for what they were saying and what they were doing. Jesus is condemning them for what he describes as hypocritical worship. He actually says here that their worship is in vain. But notice why he argues that their worship is in vain. He says they are teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Pharisees had gone beyond what God had commanded in their worship, and they had added additional requirements and elements to their worship. Notice that the Pharisees had not stopped doing what God commanded. They were doing what God commanded, but they had added to what God commanded additional requirements and practices. And because of this, Jesus says here in this text that they had actually rejected the commandment of God. They might have objected, no, we're, we're doing the commandments of God. But Jesus says, no, because you have added beyond what God has instructed, therefore you have rejected the commandments of God. Jesus continues by then listing some of the other religious requirements that the Pharisees had added beyond what God had commanded. But then notice what he says to the Pharisees at the end of the passage in verse 13. He says, By doing this, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Jesus is saying by adding man-made requirements to worship beyond what God has commanded, the making void the word of God. They are not trusting in the sufficiency and the authority of scripture for their worship. And therefore, Jesus says, their worship is in vain. This confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees really, I believe, provides a core principle that must govern any discussion of worship. In the midst of so much confusion and controversy today over how we ought to worship, we need to remain firmly convinced that the fundamental bedrock truth upon which all of our theology and practice of corporate worship must be grounded is the authority and sufficiency of the word of God. That this is where it must begin. Of course, the key biblical text in our New Testament that emphasizes the authority and sufficiency of God's word is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible teaches that scripture was literally breathed out by the Spirit of God, and the Bible contains all of the authority of God within its pages. The inspired revelation is authoritative and it is sufficient, as the text says, to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness. The Word of God is authoritative. The word of God is sufficient, Paul says here, to sufficiently equip us for every good work, even, or perhaps better, especially the good work for which we were created, which is the worship of our holy God. The Bible is sufficient to tell us how God wants to be worshiped. 
So this is why all of our theology and all of our practice of worship must be founded in the authority and sufficiency of what God has spoken, what God has written in his divine revelation. Of course, this doctrine of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture over worship, in particular, has historically been of fundamental concern for people who who believe in the importance of the sufficiency and authority of Scripture over everything. Particularly in the 17th century, Baptists and Presbyterians who were sort of leaving the church at Rome and leaving the Anglican church in England objected to all of the extra requirements and rituals and ceremonies of worship, which certainly the church at Rome had added. But even Protestant churches like the Church of England and the Lutheran Church continued to add extra biblical requirements to worship beyond what the New Testament taught. And so many Puritans and Separatists came out and they insisted that our worship must be regulated by the word of God. The second Baptist, uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith, which was a, a statement of the beliefs of these Baptists who were coming out of the Church of England, they described it this way. They said, The rule of this knowledge, faith, and obedience concerning the worship and service of God and all other Christian duties is not man's inventions, opinions, devices, laws, and constitutions, or traditions unwritten, but only the word of God contained in the canonical scriptures. Only the Bible is the sufficient authority to tell us how God wants to be worshipped. The authority and sufficiency of scripture really is a critical, fundamental doctrine. It's important for us to grasp in all areas of our Christian lives, but especially when we think about worship. And I want to take a few moments and really unpack that. Why is it so important that we rely on and trust in the sufficient authority of God's word when it comes to our worship. Well, really, I think there are three primary biblical reasons that we need to rest in the sufficiency of God's written word when we think about our theology and practice of worship. First, the very idea of worship itself begins with God's self-revelation. Worship exists, if you think about it, worship exists only because God has revealed himself to us in his word. God's speaking the world into existence was, in essence, an act to create worship. God created the universe out of nothing through his spoken word. And why did he do that? He did that for the express purpose of displaying his own glory. And then he created Adam in his image in order that Adam might witness the glory of God and might respond rightly in adoration and worship. God's chief end is to glorify himself, and he calls all men everywhere to fulfill their purpose in life in doing the same thing, in bringing glory to God, in adoring him and worshiping him as he created them to do through his spoken word. The fact that God's first words created the very existence of worship ought to lead to a recognition that all worship begins with what God has said, with his spoken word. God is the initiator of worship. 
And in particular, God's revelation of himself is what provides the very basis for all true worship. All worship begins with God's words. And so this is one important reason that our worship must be grounded in the authoritative, sufficient word of God. Worship begins and ends with God's very words. But second, it's important to recognize that throughout Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, we have many, many examples of God rejecting worship that includes elements that he has not prescribed, that go beyond his word. Rarely do God's people introduce elements into their worship out of a malicious intent. They're not trying to disobey God. As the Pharisees said, we're we're obeying God. We're, We're doing what God has commanded. Rarely are they doing so out of a malicious intent that their motive usually is to enhance the worship of Yahweh. They want to make it better. They want to make it more engaging. They want God to be glorified even more. And so they think that they can do that through adding extra things to worship. But God nevertheless rejects worship that includes extra biblical elements. One of the most striking examples of this is found with Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, in Leviticus chapter 10. You're probably familiar with this account. Listen to what's recorded in Leviticus 10 verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered, notice this, unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So what was the result? And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In this passage, Nadab and Abihu are offering what Moses describes here as unauthorized fire to the Lord, and they were killed for it. And the question that must have been in everyone's minds, including, no doubt, Aaron, their father, is why were they killed? There was nothing inherently evil or profane in what they were doing. They weren't attempting to worship a false god. They weren't disobeying or taking away from the clear commands for worship that God had given them. But the fact that, as verse 1 says, The Lord had not commanded this element of worship. This was unauthorized fire. Why? Because the Lord had not commanded it. That is the reason that they were killed. Folks, God is very serious about this, is he not? The only acceptable worship before God is that which he has commanded. And of course, we've already seen that this is the exact problem that the Pharisees had in the New Testament, whom Jesus strongly condemned. But unfortunately, those same continued to plague the early church with the, the people who are sometimes referred to as Judaizers. Christians who, who had converted from Judaism, they were converted to Christianity, but they, they taught that it was necessary to adopt Jewish religious practices from the law of Moses in order to please the Lord. They wanted to bring those those elements that were not commanded for the New Testament church and make them requirements for Christians who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. 
The church first encountered this when some Jewish Christian converts traveled to Antioch and insisted to the Christians there, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And this resulted in the formation of a council of church leaders at Jerusalem, including James and Peter and Paul, to debate the matter. And that council concluded that requiring religious practices that have not been prescribed for the New Testament church was a yoke on the neck of the disciples. We read this morning from the book of Galatians. That's the entire context of that discussion in Galatians. We cannot add religious requirements to New Testament worship, even the wonderful religious requirements that God had prescribed for Old Testament Israel. No, we must limit ourselves to only those instructions and commandments that have been prescribed for the New Testament church. Again, the bottom line is that God alone has the right to determine how we worship. And he has communicated sufficient revelation for how he desires to be worshipped in the word that he has given us, in his inspired word. And so we need to be certain that how we are worshiping is what God has prescribed. And we need to be satisfied with that. We need not be looking for other things to add to our worship, to make it more somehow exciting or engaging, to somehow make it better. No, everything that is necessary for our worship has been given to us in the word that God has inspired. Again, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, I think, succinctly describes this biblical doctrine very well. And again, remember the context. They're objecting to the extra-biblical requirements added to worship in the Church of England. And they say this, But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Let's rely on and trust in and be satisfied with, they were teaching, the sufficient and authoritative word of God. Third, The third principle from Scripture that that ought to make us trust and rely on the sufficiency of Scripture is this. Scripture is clear that Christians have liberty of conscience in spiritual matters. So what does that mean? How does that affect how we worship? Well, it means that even pastoral authority, even God-given authorities don't have the right to add other things to worship beyond what God has prescribed, because that would go against liberty of conscience. No church leader has the authority to impose upon another a spiritual practice, no matter how much it has an appearance of wisdom, as Colossians chapter 2 describes it. This is exactly what Puritans and separatists in 17th century England were facing. The the Anglican church was thoroughly Protestant. They believed in justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. They believed in all the solas. They had separated from the Church of England, but... 
They were adding things like the lighting of incense and and the wearing of priestly robes and, and, and the veneration of icons and other sorts of elements to worship. And the Puritans and Separatists said, these things are not prescribed for us in the Holy Scriptures, and therefore they are going against our conscience to participate in those extra biblical elements. This principle is clearly laid out in the New Testament again, because in the early years of the church, some Christians were insisting upon introducing those Jewish worship elements into Christian worship, elements that had been been not prescribed in the New Testament for churches to observe. Paul deals with this issue specifically in Romans chapter 14. This is the context of Romans chapter 14. The context is people who wanted to to add Jewish religious requirements to New Testament Christian worship. And listen to how Paul addresses this problem that existed in the church of Rome in in Romans chapter 14 and verse 5. He says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So again, understanding the context here is important. Paul is specifically dealing in Romans 14 with Christian Jews who desired to maintain religious restrictions and observances from the Mosaic law. Things like observing Jewish holy days or dietary restrictions like not eating pork or ham. And so Paul, in response then, insists in verse 5 that each one should be fully convinced in his own mind concerning sacred days. And in verse 23, he warns that the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that that does not come from faith is sin. The question that Paul is addressing is this. Should we observe those Jewish holy days? Should we participate or restrain ourselves from from eating those things that had been restricted in the Mosaic law, even though those holy days and those dietary restrictions have not been prescribed for the New Testament church? And Paul answers that in order to institute something like that, each person must be convinced that he ought to do that. Each person must be convinced in his his own mind that he uh, celebrate that particular holy day or that he restrain from eating what the Mosaic law restrained him from eating. The point here, Paul is saying, is that we have to be careful not to impose upon another person's conscience that which they are not convinced they ought to be doing. Now, here's the question. When we gather together as the church, what is the only way that we can be convinced by God that God wants us to observe a particular religious practice or worship element? The only way that every one of us can be convinced is if it is prescribed for us in the scriptures, Paul is saying. So Paul is saying if you're a Jew and you're converted to Christianity and in your home you just eat pork, it it just would bother you. Well, then don't eat pork. That's fine. But don't impose that religious restriction upon someone else because that has not been prescribed as a religious prescription in the New Testament. 
or if you're a Jew and you're converted to Christianity and you still want to observe the Passover because it's part of your history, you don't see it as saving you, but you still want to observe that, you can do that in your home. But don't impose that religious practice on someone else, say a Gentile Christian, who is not convinced that they need to observe that because the New Testament has not prescribed that for the New Testament church. We cannot impose upon the free conscience of another Christian that which the word of God has not prescribed for us. Again, in the 17th century, Presbyterians, Baptists, Puritans, and Separatists, they emphasized this point strongly. They, they insisted upon biblical authority over worship practice not to unnecessarily restrict corporate worship. They weren't trying to restrict how we worship. Rather, they were trying to liberate stricken consciences from practices within corporate worship that were not prescribed in the New Testament for churches to observe. They insisted that no man, even church authorities within the Church of England, had the right to constrain a worshiper to participate in an activity of worship that had no scriptural directive. And so once again, they summarized this point very well. And by the way, all, all, all three of these paragraphs that I'm quoting from the, the, the London Baptist Confession are nearly identical in the Westminster Confession. Puritans and separatists were, were united on this subject of biblical authority over how we worship. And they summarize this point very, very well when they say, God alone is the Lord of conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commands of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. And the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Again, they were trying to protect the consciences of God's people. Far from being restrictive, this trust and reliance in what God has spoken, what God has written in his sufficient and authoritative word, this is, this is liberating. Pastors don't have to worry about chasing after the latest worship fad. Okay, what's the next thing that I need to be introducing into my church to make things more exciting or engaging? Pastors don't have to worry about that. We can simply trust in the sufficiency of God's word. Church leaders don't have to take preference polls of the people. Okay, what do you all want to do in worship next week? No, we can trust in the sufficiency of God's word. And likewise, church members don't have to fear the next worship novelty. What is, what is pastor going to introduce in worship next week? What, what's, the, what's the newest fad that's come along in the, in, in, the, in the church today? No, we can simply trust in the clear instructions that God has given us in his word. This is liberating. This is freeing for us. John Fawcett, an English Baptist pastor in the mid-17th century, I think really well summarized this critical conviction. He said, No acts of worship can properly be called holy, but such as the Almighty has enjoined. No man nor any body of men have any authority to invent rites and ceremonies of worship, 
to change the ordinances which he has established or invent new ones. The divine word, he said, is the only safe directory in what relates to the immediate service of worship. The question is not what we think becoming decent or proper, but what our gracious master has authorized as such. In matters of religion, nothing bears the stamp of holiness but what God has ordained. This is such a fundamental principle. Our churches today are so filled with controversy over how we ought to be worshiping. Is this good? Is this bad? Should we include this? Should we not include this? Do we like this? Do we not like that? All of those questions would be answered if we simply rely on the sufficiency of what God has written in his word. This is the fundamental principle upon which any of our theology and any of our practice of worship must be founded and rooted and grounded. So now, based on that principle, based on that core biblical doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, again, remember why this is important. Number one, worship is impossible without the Word of God. Number two, God rejects worship that goes beyond what God has spoken. And number three, the Word of God protects liberty of conscience. We're only required to do what God prescribes for us to do when it comes to the worship of his holy name. So on the basis of that fundamental foundational doctrine, What does worship look like then that is governed by Scripture? Well, I think this emphasis upon biblical authority over our corporate worship would apply in at least four areas. And let me just say as we we work through these areas, I'm, I'm in a lot of churches, and I'm always thankful to be in a church like this that clearly is governed by the Word of God. We're going to see that what we did this morning in this worship service were things that were prescribed for us to do in the Holy Scriptures. It's an encouraging thing to be, and let me, let me encourage you and admonish you to, to, to stick with that, to be satisfied with that, to be satisfied with what God has given us in his sufficient word. So what are the four areas where this would apply? Well, number one, the elements of our worship ought to be derived from the word of God. In other words, what we do in a corporate worship service. The sufficient word given us, what we sometimes describe as the ordinary means of grace that are necessary for worship. What are those things that God has prescribed, particularly in the New Testament for the New Testament church? What has he prescribed? Well, first, Paul commands Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, in the context of teaching him how you ought to behave in the household of God, Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself to to the public reading of Scripture. That's a command given to us. It's not an option. You know, what would, it, what would happen if one week, you know, someone came to me as an elder in our church and said, you know what, we read a lot of Scripture in a corporate worship service, and I just think that's kind of boring. Would I say, oh, okay, well, in that case, <laughs> we'll get rid of it. No. I would say, no, the Bible prescribes it. The Bible prescribes that we do this. But to... to branch off of our last point a moment ago, what if in our corporate worship service we lit incense in the service and someone came up to me and said, you know what, I'm having a real hard time with that lighting of incense thing. I'm just uncomfortable with it. I would have no biblical authority to impose that on the conscience of someone in the congregation. But what can we impose upon all of our consciences? 
those things that the Bible has prescribed, and this is one of them. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And you may think, well, that's obvious. But let me tell you, I've had students that I've taught who were music directors in their local congregation, and when they started to try to introduce Scripture readings in their worship, their pastor said to them, eh, too much Scripture. It gets in the way of our worship. This is a problem. But this is, a, this is a command that God has given us. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. I love what, what we did in our service this morning. Old Testament reading, New Testament reading. The, the, the opening of the Word of God and simply reading it in the ears of God's people. This has been prescribed. This is something we ought to do. He, Paul repeats similar commands in Colossians 4.16 and 1 Thessalonians 5.27. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Also, in that same context, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul commands Timothy, devote yourself to exhortation and to teaching. In 2 Timothy 4, 2, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The preaching of God's word is a clearly prescribed biblical element of worship. Not a, not a skit, not a play, not a drama. No, the preaching and teaching and exhortation of God's word has been commanded for our worship. Third, Paul commands, like we, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. He commands the Colossians in Colossians 4.2 to continue steadfastly in prayer. And to the Ephesians, he admonishes praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, making supplication for all the saints. Public, corporate prayer is a commanded element of biblical worship. A fourth biblically prescribed element of worship really is not a separate element necessarily, but it's a way in which we proclaim the word and a way in which we speak to God, and that is through singing. In both Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, Paul clearly commands that gathered believers ought to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And by that, we are singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, Ephesians 5.19. We are teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, Colossians 3.16. So here again, singing is a commanded element. You can't just say, well, I'm, you know, I didn't grow up singing. I don't really like singing, so I'm not going to sing. That doesn't matter. God commands us to sing. So if you, maybe you didn't grow up singing. Maybe that wasn't part of your, your, your growing up. Maybe you're not particularly musically gifted. Okay, well, then do what you can to learn the necessary skills to be able to, to sing because this is a commanded biblical element of worship. Fifth, Christ commanded in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism being that symbol of being united to Christ and his church, that, that ordinance by which we are entered into membership, into the local visible church, that's a, a requirement, a command that has been given to local churches. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul told the Corinthian church that he passed on the Lord's Supper to the church having received it from the Lord himself. So the Lord's Supper is, again, a biblically prescribed ordinance of worship that God has given to us. So here we have very clear 
elements of worship that have been prescribed for the New Testament church. These are the only corporate worship elements given to the church in the New Testament. They are all we need. We need to be satisfied with this. We need to trust in the sufficiency of these elements of worship. To add or to subtract from any of these God-ordained elements would be to distrust in the sufficiency of God's word in giving us everything we need to equip us for every good work. And so the first area in which our worship is shaped by scripture is in the elements that we choose to include. You ought not be seeking after other things to add. No, these are what God has prescribed. This is what God wants. And this is best for us as we seek to gather to worship the Lord. Second, the content of our worship elements must be derived from the word of God. What did Paul say? He said, preach the word. He, he said that when we sing, we must let the word of Christ dwell richly within us. Even our prayers to God ought to be saturated with scripture. We're praying for things that God has commanded us to pray for. Really put simply, in corporate worship, we read the word, we sing the word, we preach the word, we pray the word, and we visualize the word in baptism in the table. Everything is about the word. Our worship is born of, built on, fueled by, governed by, filled with, and sanctified by the inspired, authoritative word of God. Third, so that's the elements of worship, the content of our worship. Number three, even the forms of our worship ought to be derived from the word of God. The way in which we worship, the way we read scripture, the way we preach, the way we pray, the way we sing. These things have been modeled for us in the very word of God. Think about what the Bible is for a moment. The Bible is not a dry textbook of systematic theology. No, the Bible is filled with literature, poetry, songs, imagery, beauty, And all of that beauty and imagery and poetry is meant to govern and influence our poetry and music and and preaching and reading of scriptures even in our modern day. The way that we do the elements of worship matters. There are many believers today, they limit themselves to what God has prescribed and the content of their worship is the word of God, but they think the way that we do it doesn't really matter. We can just use whatever cultural forms are out there in the pagan world. We can just kind of bring them into the church and we can just just worship with, with those forms. No, the Bible even governs how we worship, how we sing, how we pray, how we preach. Those things must be uh, informed and regulated by the inspired word of God. And then fourth, even how we put these things together in a corporate worship service ought to be derived from the word of God. The Bible is filled with examples of corporate worship services and the kinds of things that are done in worship. Certainly something like praise, thanksgiving, and adoration is central to our worship. But unfortunately, in many churches today, that's all that worship is. All worship is, is focused on praise and adoration. That is biblical, but the Bible also emphasizes things like confession of sin, assurance of pardon in the gospel, commitment and dedication to the Lord, 
uh, receiving God's blessing. These are all parts of worship that are modeled for us in the Word of God and things that we ought to be sure that we include in our corporate worship as we see those examples given for us in the Scriptures. Most poignantly, I think, are the examples in Scripture we have of heavenly worship. Both in Isaiah chapter 6 and in the book of Revelation, we are given a glimpse into the worship of heaven. And our earthly worship is a mirror of the perpetual worship that is taking place in heaven. And we need to read passages like that, immerse ourselves, okay, what does the worship of heaven look like? And let's make sure that our worship here on earth follows the same sort of biblical model of worship that we see in the worship of heaven itself. God has given us his sufficient word. Are we going to trust it? Are we going to rely on what God has spoken? Are we going to be satisfied with what God has given us? Are we going to make sure that when we come to worship, we're not interested in, in, what, in what we want to do. We are rather interested in what God wants us to do, what God has commanded us to do. From the opening words of Scripture, uh, of a worship service and, uh, and a quotation of Scripture like we did this morning, from the closing words of a worship service, everything needs to be governed by what God has spoken in his word. By carefully considering these things, By carefully considering that every aspect of our worship is governed by, fueled by, and regulated by the sufficient word of God, then we can be certain that we are pleasing God with how we come to worship. We are honoring God in the way that he has desired. We're not coming of our own initiative. We're not coming just to do what we want to do. No, we are coming at the God. He has called us to worship. He has invited us to draw near to his presence through the sacrifice of atonement that he accomplished through his son. And we come by faith, trusting that if we come through Christ, we are accepted in the very presence of God, not because of our own merit, not because of our own goodness or strength. We are here because of Christ's righteousness. So we come by faith, but then we come desiring to glorify and please God by doing those things that he has commanded us to do. Let's rely on God's word. Let's be satisfied and filled with joy to do what God has commanded us to do. Not looking out there at what others are doing, certainly not taking our cues from the pagan culture. No, God has given us what he wants us to do. And so let's glorify him. Let's please him. Let's worship him by worshiping him according to what he has instructed. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you have called us to enter your presence to bring you honor and glory. And we praise you that though we cannot come into your presence of our own merit because of our sin, you have provided the means of drawing near to you through the sacrifice of your son. You've made worship possible through the atonement of Christ. And we praise you that we come this morning not on the basis of our own merits or our own initiative, but we come because your word calls us to come and your word tells us how to come and your word tells us what you want us to do when we come. And so help us to trust in this. Help us never to be dissatisfied with what you have given us in your word, but allow us to rely on it Allow, it to see, allow us to see that these things are what bring you most, most glory, but they're also what nurture our souls, what mature us and disciple us and make us lifelong worshipers. And so we thank you that you've given us your word that sufficiently equips us for every good work. We praise you. 
We bring you the honor and glory that you deserve because of it. In Christ's name, amen.